To ship, of course. It's time again for uh, Build Engineering, DevOps, Release Management, and everything in between. It is the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng, on the Twitter sphere and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who's with me for episode 58? This is Seth at Cheese Plus on Twitter. This is Mike at Son of Gar on Twitter. And this is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter and BuildScientist.com. How are you all doing this evening? Good. Decent. Decent. I, I finished a thing, which makes me happy. <laughs> Mike, you're drinking wine, man. You you have to be better than decent. It's decent is pretty good. I had a buddy who I grew up with. His name is Tony, and he used to always say that de- we found that decent for him was like top notch. So, <laughs> you know, my my dad used to say people would ask how are you doing, and he'd say oh sixty forty. <laughs> so anyway, tonight uh, we will be speaking with Pager Duty's Ranjeev Day about a somewhat controversial tweet from a couple years ago, um, which may uh, sound kind of weird, but um, a lot of discussion at the time about it. We revisit whether or not uh, it's still relevant today and how, if so, how it is relevant and kind of dissect the tweet heard around the world or around the DevOps world, as it were. But um, first up, as we always do, news and views. The OpenBSD team is slowly but surely re-implementing the world, but in a more secure fashion. We have news uh, from about a month ago that they released a tool called Duaz that is a pseudo-replacement. We will link to the announcement in the show notes. Uh, Yusuf, as we were looking at this earlier, you were like, they still use CVS. Yeah, unbelievable, but good for them, I guess. The one thing that I don't understand, and usually there's at least some discussion around this, is why did they replace it? Because it's OpenBSD, they do their own thing. I mean, that's... Uh, Well, I was just saying, so there is that, the long history of doing their own thing. But I also think that, uh, I mean, having looked at a lot of tools of that era, and that the, the idea that, like, collaborative code somehow increases the quality of code because you have more eyes on it, it's like it, it's like if you have more hands on deck, you can patch more holes in the boat. And there's that, like, and, and that's kind of like how pseudo and a lot of those other library or like, or not libraries, but things that almost are like the backbones of operating systems have been developed. That's like you know in the in the the GNU tool sets and everything. And so you have this like let's support everything under the sun all the way back to like S390. And I'm actually all for a lot of these like modern rewrites of tools where it's like all right. This is dumb. Let's start over. Like let's 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 like we actually know how to develop things now, and like let's make some reasonable cutoffs. So I've seen this with you've got the the open S, there's the Libra SSL. There's the pseudo rewrite, and there's another one recently that I, I can't remember. They rewrote file. Oh, they rewrote file. There was uh, there was a, there was some other oh like like the rewrites of like Vim and uh, like the Neo Vim rewrite and what was it? Uh, not Tmux. There was something else similar to that with yeah, so maybe, you know maybe, what? maybe it was Tmux because screen code was so complicated. But there have been a lot of these recently where it's like you know this supports a lot of things that seriously nobody cares about anymore, and also like let's just clean up the you know as I, as I was saying earlier about. Like that's my tire fire. Like maybe you should. Maybe it's time to find a new tire fire. <laughs> well, you know, I will say, I, you know, I will say this: the OpenBSD people, Theo, has a reputation for being an. But, you know, there kind of is this, like, they kind of are right a lot of the time, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the fact that the file utility is exploitable is, like, really, really, how... And the one thing that's really indisputable, uh, I think, about the OpenBSD team is, the you know, the fact that they kind of... The, the whole team is, is really uh, credible uh, on security matters. So at least when they go to re-implement one of these things, they do a good job. But I think it's a good... I think it's a good folk... I mean, 
mean, it's a good thing to do. Like, I, at one point, I was I would have heavily advocated against rewrites because, like, oh, there's already a thing. But I, having looked at a lot of like how these things have grown over time and become bloated and broken, and like having to deal with building packages that work on all the different package management systems and deal with all the various like oh, you're on this system, and it doesn't actually have pseudo, so you have to do this other weird thing. Um, <laughs> and it's like, wow, a lot of the, like, a lot of the stuff that we rely on day-to-day -day is, is super brittle. And so I'm always, like, I, I've, I've become, I went from, like, hardline against these big rewrites to, you know what, if it makes it better, please God. Like, because like, some of that code, if you've ever looked at any of those old things, are just, it's, it's scary town. Well, it is one of those things that the requirements changed, certainly, right? The, the, our context for that particular tool or whatever changed. And so sometimes maybe, you know, in, in like, I mean, look at postfix QMail was a real reaction to I'm tired of being hacked by SendMail for the gajillionth time. I'm just right. tired of it. Yep, that makes sense to me. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see, and, and like you said, the quality. I find it always funny that they, like, they think Theo, Theo's an but then, like, you look at Linus, and I'm like, ah, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like one is like, you know, I feel, I feel like, I, I mean, and I like a lot of Theo's, not all of Theo's stuff, but like some of the stuff he's written, where it's like, this is how you should do things. These are sane engineering practices, um, and I'm generally down with most of most of the that kind of stuff. But I haven't seen personal interactions. It, so it's if it's just like, Linus, then that's terrible. It's like dueling. You know, <laughs> we got to get the FreeBSD folks involved too, because then you can have like a real, a real shootout. Yeah, I'm actually surprised, Seth, being our resident sort of hipster language hipster OS person, that you're not running Duas on your OpenBSD box. Somewhere. Oh, it's because I don't have an, a, a spare box to run OpenBSD on. Actually, that's that's really what it comes down to. I'd have I'd have a lot more BSD in my house if it ran on Apple hardware reasonably. Um, <laughs> it's, not well, their, it's not their fault. I'm not blaming them, but it's more of a there's there's no there's there's very little interest in doing that. Right, 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 right. Next up, we actually have actually related to old tools like that. Uh, Linux Foundation funds. NTP's father time, a gentleman by the name of Harlan Sten, the network time protocol maintainer, apparently um, one of the few uh, that actually works on the project. And it was kind of uh, interesting from the standpoint, you know, where I think we're seeing a lot of these uh, projects, you know, you're talking about OpenSSL, a lot of these projects where we're finding like core internet infrastructure actually is maintained by one engineer in his 50s who's getting ready to retire and nobody noticed. Did you all see this announcement? I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure. <laughs> well, I always yeah, laugh. You know the big, the big, uh, the, remember the, and we talked about this on the show, the, the big Java bugs were due to leap second problems. I talked about how Google had introduced the leap second via N the NTP protocol. So, you know, there's a, there's a quote, uh, I think that's very prescient. And again, it's one of these, we forget this every single time, even though we get slapped with OpenSSL, we get slapped with file and sudo, you know, he said, um, um, if NTP should get hacked or for some reason stop functioning, hundreds of thousands of systems, I'd be willing to guess it's maybe even more than that, uh, would fill the consequences if that happened all the critics would say see you can't trust open source code i think that's really important and we already kind of saw that with open ssl where people are like well maybe we should use uh, your private crypto vendors and that is probably not the solution but one of these ignore ignore that those little small daemons doing things you don't notice at your own peril and actually relatedly their news came uh, actually uh, last week that the linux foundation is developing a new free 
badge program, um, and they, they're seeking some uh, input on what that would look like, but it's to help determine security, quality, and stability of open source code. Well, I'm curious, uh, based on you know the Duaz discussion we just had, but also all the recent discussions around uh, open source code and how it's sort of, uh, I, I think EJ put it, you know, kicked us in the crotch. <laughs> I think was the way he phrased it, that just, you know, or the gut, just we kind of get kicked there and uh, don't know how to, they're just massive problems and outages and issues. But Kirsten, what do you all think of this? I think it's a good uh, it's a good effort. Whether or not it's going to work, I mean, uh, I'm curious to see, you know, what's the process for giving out badges. It's all on GitHub. Oh. We'll link to it on GitHub. Yeah. But yes, good question, but that's one interesting thing. It's on GitHub, and it has a make file to generate HTML, of course, <laughs> to generate HTML. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see how, how, it, how it pans out, but I, I, like, I, I don't know. Initiatives like this, it, it remains to be seen. <laughs> I do like some of the initial criteria they're using. It must have a project website, and the project website has basic content. These are like initial criteria for a badge, I guess. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's one of those things, uh, you know, to the point Seth, you're making about more eyeballs on open source somehow magically maybe makes it better. It'll be interesting to see how this is funded. Who's actually doing this work? Uh, in theory, it's good, but if the badge because you remember the Microsoft certified my software is certified for Windows 95 remember yeah right yeah if it becomes that then uh, you know well, I don't I don't even think it has a chance of becoming that that's kind of <laughs> I don't I don't even think that's gonna like yeah all, all the Linuxes they'll totally be the same mostly kind of not really like it's just one of those like yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Like, let's talk about it in a year if it's still around. Yeah, yeah. Or, or at least still relevant. Right, agree there. Uh, last up, we have some a fascinating tale of debugging from uh, our friends over at Stack Exchange. The name of the post, Why You Should Wait on Upgrading to .NET 4.6. A lot of you may think, well, I'm not a .NET shop, I don't do .NET, so screw .NET. You should go read this story because it turns out that they were finding a, a bug in their code in uh, production that they were having trouble replicating in test the dev tests and test environment, and it comes down to it, it came down to an optimizer bug, and they had to dig through. Uh, all of the the actual instructions in the .NET runtime environment to so actually like the compiler optimization. Yeah, the compiler op the optimizer in the compiler had a bug and was in generating code that actually I think messed up the stack frame. So you would pop Ooh. off the stack, and and here's the thing: it didn't cause a crash. It just caused really bad performance degradation. I think was the the thing. So it's a great story of sometimes uh, you know kind of foreshadowing our, our conversation with Ranjib about development and operations. Sometimes the debugging that uh, operations folks have to do. Have any of you run into uh, a kind of a nasty Heisenbug, as a uh, professor in college used to call them? Oh, man, you, you want to know, I found a good one recently that was not even, it wasn't even like a Heisenbug in the sense that it was like a hidden thing. It was it was one of those, you upgrade to a new version of something, and like everyone's like, hey, it's all clear, right? Like, and <laughs> right. In case, Famous last words. In, in this case, in this case, we'll, we'll call out the culprit. It is VirtualBox. And so... <laughs> Uh, there's a big version change from version version four to you know 4.3.30, and then you go to 5.0. And so there was a problem where if you're building, so I'm building multiple VM providers, so Parallels, Fusion, and VirtualBox at the same time. And VirtualBox had this lovely little bug 
where if another hypervisor is running, it would just kernel panic the system. Which that was, seems legit. Which is super awesome because it's like, oh, not only are you going to be like, are you going to be about this, but you're going to do it specifically when other virtualization, like other hypervisors are running. Like, I can think of this code, if, if VMware, right. yeah, yeah. If VMware running slapped the user quite literally. But it was like such a, like, and, and you know, they, they fixed it really quickly. But so I, I upgraded to version 5 to do this. And at the time, version 5 is on 5.0.2. And so I get it. And I'm trying to build, and I waste a good half of a day trying to figure out why VirtualBox all of a sudden isn't working on my desktop machine. Because I'd already upgraded my build farm builders. Right. And they're working fine. Turns out that they reintroduced a regression were on specific chipsets, like Haswell's of a certain type, type, you know, type of thing. Then VirtualBox, the hypervisor, fails to initialize, and it dies in such a nasty way that you don't even get a stack trace in Packer or anything. You'd have to be running VirtualBox manually. Nowhere is this advertised, and I, you know, it's one of those you dig through a forum somewhere, you find it that oh yeah, it's a confirmed bug, and it's fixed in the testing build, which you then grab the testing build, and of course it works. But for about six hours. I was troubleshooting every single thing about VBox to find out that there was actually nothing that I could do. And it was building fine on other machines. That was the most infuriating, where it's like, you're like, but it literally works on my other machine. Like, you're giving the works on my machine badge to yourself <laughs> and wanting to die. Yes, yes. So that's my fun one. Yeah. Well, I was, that's the reason I love stories like this, because they're such low level, and, it, and it's so often we, in some sense, it's the magic, if you will, of computers. Uh, it's a magical that it works, and when it doesn't work, though, I mean, all the stuff is implemented by humans. Um, when it doesn't work, we sort of, sometimes it's hard to find out, like, what's actually going on, so. Oh, God, yeah. Such fun stories about this. You actually reminded me, I, I actually have one more that I just, I almost forgot about. People who have APIs that return, that return a key, but don't also, so they return a key on a get, but don't, don't accept that same key on a post. When the revolution comes, you will be first against the wall. Um, I, I will find you because I've been dealing with a lot of APIs recently and, to, and today I was dealing with one that like you pulled down a key and it was like this and you're like okay cool like say like the key was B and the value was like do this stuff except when you passed it B on a post the server would 500 and there's no way nowhere in the documentation did it say that this key was actually named a completely different thing I did, you, did you sleep 5000? Because <laughs> that probably would have solved the problem, right? Probably consistent. I um, use that for all of my threading problems. <laughs> no, it, it turned it turned out that it was yeah, it's just a completely different key that they just decided to not document. And the re only way I found it was because there I dug into the DOM of their web UI to figure out what the hell it was sending, and it's sending a completely different key name. And I'm like, son of a bitch. So yeah, fun times. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. My life has been uh, full of those bugs lately, so I'm, I'm feeling the pain. It's, those are the bugs you remember. Yeah, definitely. Next up, Pager Duties Run Jeep Day and the uh, tweet heard around the world, at least the Twitter DevOps world, here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Rizzo. Our topic tonight, times, will, you'll see things tweeted on Twitter oftentimes have a backstory. Maybe they're a bit of a subtweet, but there's a nugget of truth or discussion in there that can kind of take the entire tweet sphere, the DevOps tweet sphere by storm. We have an example of that 
today, and we're here today with Ranjeev Day, who's a, a many of you know from the chef community, also the pager duty community. Uh, he's an infrastructure engineer there. Welcome to the Ship Show, Ranjeev. Hey, Paul. So your tweet was somewhat maybe controversial, um, maybe not. We're going to actually delve into that, but it said, and of course we'll link to it in the show notes, it will take ages before traditional ops understand and adopt mainstream software development practices. Now, one interesting thing, you know, this tweet caught our attention. Uh, this tweet is actually was was tweeted August twenty first of twenty thirteen. That's a uh, quite a while ago, but it caught our attention as sort of a, a discussion point or kind of an interesting topic to discuss. So, uh, given that it is actually almost what a week and a couple years old now, do you still believe that? Yeah, I still, I still believe that it'll take quite a long journey and time for us to get there. So, even two years in. Yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. And I'm curious, was there uh, something that prompted this tweet? Uh, I know a lot of times I'll tweet something that sometimes gets a lot of traction or people are, are discussing it, and it's actually based on some, you know, something I saw in an actual environment or something like that. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. this an example of that? or? Yeah, I mean, I think the tweet was made like two years back, when, and, and that was also during when I was making a lot of, you know, uh, in-house products as SaaS services, and, then, and I could feel the operations, and then the... Historically, for us, it has, it is a tactical workload that has prohibited from you know taking long haul or very methodical software development practices or adopting. But once SaaS came in, the the, the operations challenges become gigantic. Like you have to deal with it from the first day as you grow. And and during that time, I made this tweet that I think it will take ages for us just because the tactical workloads are going to become exponentially higher than before. So it sounds like uh, there's sort of an increase in kind of the complexity of your environment and you were trying to sort of emphasize how important that is? Yes, absolutely. Not only like in, in terms of size that you have to deal with uh, because you are providing the solution and you are also taking care of its operations. It is also that we are also living more and more interconnected world where we are taking a lot of our internal components and we are letting third-party providers providing those services and we are depending more and more on network, which is more and more, uh, you know, fragile. Right. Well, let's open up this question to the panel. Do you think it'll take years to adopt mainstream, ages actually, not even years, ages, uh, mainstream software development practices? Well, I, I don't know if it's going to take years, but I've, I've definitely experienced this. So my last job, I... Uh, introduced um, Chef um, to both the development and operations teams. And I remember having um, multi sort of hour long conversations with operations regarding why you should write tests. I think in that case it was Chef Spec, but or tests for your uh, Chef cookbooks. And I think the thing that ops had a hard time understanding was why are we writing code for, for code? Like, I've already written the code, I can just run it. And if it works, great. Why do I have to write and maintain other code that's never going to work or run in production? Yeah, I've almost had the exact same experience introducing Chef into an organization where you had to explain the value of tests. And I think in my conversation, it was actually, it was a comparison of Chef versus, it's escaping me now, another configuration management tool. And they were saying, well, it's just, configuration is data, so we don't need to write tests because configuration is code or infrastructure is code, you know, you, you have to write tests, but for infrastructure as data, you don't need to. And, and so I had to explain, well, probably, yeah, you still need to write tests even for that. I mean, it's something, it's something I certainly see, like, day to day in my life going out to, you know, different, not only different areas of the world, but also different, like, market sectors. And you go in and I, when I'm, you know, day to day at Chef, when I'm 
talking to people, there's like the assumption that you've actually got tests for all of your infrastructure and you've got, you know, some kind of, you've got some kind of configuration management, you've got some, you know, you've already got CI and CD. And even though like other jobs that I've had, this has been, you know, something you strove for, something you were trying to do always. There's a lot of the industry that is just not like, there are, there are certainly, I think, I feel like, especially with our, even our group assembled here, there are some, some blind spots like in, inside of, inside of like the kinds of kinds of organizations that we're, we're accustomed to seeing. And like, I've seen a lot of stuff in the past six months. It's just like, there, there are people who pay other vendors to apply a patch to their software infrastructure. Like that's, change that's management. Right. Right. Change, <laughs> change management, like outsourced change management. And then I go to them, I'm like, Hey, we could, you know, Hey, with configuration management, you could do this. And like, people are like, that's, that's too much. That's mind blowing. You can't, you, you can't possibly do that. That's magic. So it's kind of weird to see that. I mean, I, I totally agree with Ranjib's sentiment. It's just that it's a really long tail of adoption. And if you started off on like, you know, guess the bleeding edge, however many years back, the, the world is a lot different place for, I think most of you are, I don't know, say like rank and file, like IT practitioners. But if you just said like strictly operations in a very traditional sense, a lot of those folks are still are still not ready, especially in other countries from my experience. So let me ask this, because it sounds like with software, uh, we, we had done software and, you know, quote unquote code for what, 20, you know, 20, 30 years before this kind of the, I, I think you could say we got a handle on like the importance of unit tests or the importance of test driven development. I mean, b those weren't even really things. It took us that long to, to really understand that if we wanted to sustainably change our software, that's the way we had to write things. And it sounds like in everyone's experience of trying to convince people that, you know, configuration management is not just management of data. Configuration management allows you to make changes faster to your infrastructure, those sorts of things, that if you do convince them of that and they make that shift, it's almost one of those things like once you deploy it, you know, people are just struggling with the change in the way they do their jobs that kind of much like software. It's like, well, we wrote software for a really long time, but we didn't really have the tests very close to the software. And and so are we just on the same, so the question is, are, are we just on the same journey that software was? We're still at the, hey, you should really do this stage of life. And that's why all of these principles that we know are so seemingly still so foreign. Yeah, I think so. I think we're going through the same journey, but I think for us, it is a lot more accelerated. I mean, in standard software, it was a lot more, I mean, if you see the uh, actual documentation, I guess the first documented evidence of emphasizing test was around 1965 during tape drives and things like that. But the formal unit test came with uh, mostly 10 big stuff and work. So you're looking at like late 80s and things like that. But nonetheless, on top of also that there are frameworks like, you know, and there are languages like Ruby pushed a lot more TDD than any other languages. But nonetheless, JNVT, XNVT, they're already there. And also the fact about you know TDD at, and, and integration testing as uh, you know as part of installation, which tab uh, calls uh, CPAP like modules propagated. They are also there, there, but they are like for almost 40, 60 years evolving. I think we are seeing a lot compressed thing, but still for us it's like it looks like it feels like like ages. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I noticed, and and I'd be curious, Seth, maybe if you see this a lot in, in environments, it's it's funny to me how often people are like continuous delivery. We really want that. That's important to us. But they have absolutely no continuous integration pipeline or the one that they have is so horribly busted in lots of different ways because that's just not an investment and so part of the conversation the, the organization thinks they have continuous
continuous integration, but they actually totally don't. And, and maybe that's sort of the problem, part of the problem of leveling up their code and their development abilities. Maybe is that kind of part, it's like to Ranjib's point, we've, we've had all these tools that integrate beautifully and everything, but a lot of times the reality doesn't match the perception. Like we think we, think we have all this stuff integrated, but... You know, we're just moving too quickly to move to Chef or Puppet that we don't bother adding the tests on because the time that we would take to do that, the focus gets moved to something else. Is that? Well, there's, I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly that. And then there's also the, I mean, you have that fighting you, you know, the, the actual, you know, technical, existing technical debt. There's the, what actually is continuous integration? Like for, you know, what is it? You know, because I've, I've, like you're saying, I've been to a lot of places where they're like, oh yeah, we've got continuous integration. And then you look at it and you're like, well. No, you don't. <laughs> but you, it, it's, it's like, you know, who, who defines what, like, I guess the, the fullest level of, or, you know, the most complete continuous integration is. And so a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people think that they have, like, it works great for them or it's, and it was revolutionary compared to what they did have. And then you look at, you know, other places that are doing, you know, like rolling releases, you know, 20, 30 times a day and not everyone's there yet. But it's also a lot of these, a lot of the, the problem is that the organizations that are doing that like really fail fast are usually very tech savvy as, as entire organizations as well as they're usually an order of magnitude smaller than the places that are going to be resistant. And that's, that's mostly what I've noticed. It's like we're talking like you go into some place that is, that is like a multinational bank. Like you go into there and be like, all right, everybody, continuous delivery and integration, and you're, some heads are going to explode. Right. Well, let, let me ask this, because one of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently, I have a friend who likes to say, it's nice to be nice. He kind of used to bang that drum back in, in college, back when I met him. But and what I think is interesting about that, why I think it's relevant, is a lot of times when you see people that are uh, organizations that are moving at the, you know, presenting about how they do 80 gajillion deploys a day and whatever, they've made this investment that is not clear why they made it at the time necessarily. So they are fanatic about a CI pipeline that people can't shove changes in the side or shove bits out without it having recorded. They have a seemingly lower tolerance for gaming the system. Uh, they, they don't try to game the system by like cutting the investment in infrastructure, right? They, they are sort of upfront about the money and time. I, I mean, uh, Roy has that uh, had that quote from Monitorama about how much uh, Netflix spends on monitoring in the cloud. In fact, the cloud spend is higher for monitoring than it is for delivering movies to users across the internet. And so when you hear statistics like that, it's kind of like investment and improvement is a core value. And that is part of the thing that oftentimes seems to be the big hurdle where it's like, I need to see the business value of a quote unquote being nice, right? Or I need to see the business value of the investment as opposed to other organizations get it that it's a bunch of people that sort of intrinsically seem to understand that when you make those investments, you just eventually have better business outcomes. I'm wondering if if that's part of this problem, that we still have to argue that it's nice to be nice when in reality the companies that are, quote-unquote, the unicorn companies have just figured that out. Well, I mean, I think, to your point, Paul, like, Netflix, we're an engineering-first culture. I mean, like, everybody from the CEO down are engineers, effectively. And so making an investment like, like Roy was talking about a monorama in our monitoring infrastructure probably didn't, wasn't big of a, that big of an ask initially. And so when you have an organization where you say, ops, we, also, you, we want you to, to implement Chef, and then once you have that initial win, say we got Chef working and, and it's it's converging our nodes in production or test or whatever, great. 
here's the next problem you have to solve. Like no one's going to focus on the fact that you want to invest in, say, focusing on good coding practices, or you want to learn how to do object-oriented programming in, in Ruby because you want to learn how to write better chef recipes, or you want to write tests. Like that culture is not going to be tolerant of something that doesn't seem to have immediate benefit back to them, and so the ops team is going to be punished for even wanting to try to do that. And you're going to have, I mean, especially in the bigger, the bigger orgs, especially if you're in like a firefighting mode already, like that's, you know, that's your operational life. You're not yeah. going to have time to do this. And you may, you may get to a point, and I certainly have at certain points in my career where like, okay, we need to do all of these things. And if we don't, we may as well not even bother. Like we're, we're actually screwed. But there's, there are certain organizations where like, yeah, you're going to be so busy fighting the fires and fielding like the help desk tickets and all those things that you wouldn't be doing if you had, you know, more reliable infrastructure and if you had you're you you're doing some kind of test driven development, you, you could actually get to those tasks. And so a lot of the I mean, that is a lot of what people's jobs are. And so I feel like it's not just organizational sometimes. So sometimes the organization is like, I mean, they want to ride on the, the Concord before they've learned to, like, walk, basically. Right. So they're like, they want to go straight to, like, man, we want to, you know, we want to be, like, not, not to pick on anyone, but, like, we want to be, like, Etsy. We want to deploy this many times a day, and we want to have all this cool stuff and, like, break production and fail forward. And there's, like, one person who actually believes that at the company and who's at high enough power to actually enact some change. And the problem was, even if they're super psyched about it, the ops people are the one who have to implement it, and they're given the same budget and time, and they still have the existing responsibilities. So they're going to be... Um, I've actually seen a lot of the resistance not be from the management, is what, you know, the perceived word. It's just, like, they want, they want tons of value without any investment. There's just kickback from the, the, the people themselves, the implementers themselves, or the would-be implementers, because of, I guess, uh, the response. They feel like it's not their job to do that, if that makes sense. So there's there's certainly resistance, or but can be resistance. Is it not their job, or you, I think you imply that they don't have space to do that, right? They don't have, they're, they're in firefighting mode, and, and they have this massive infrastructure well, to maintain, so they, they spend too much time doing that and they can't invest in learning something new. So I, would say, so I would say both. Yeah, yeah. I've seen both. both. I, I was going to say it was interesting to me how often you'll see, and I think we've talked about um, these sorts of people on the show, where it's like their perception of their role is, and, and I have certainly been in, the, in this position myself, their perception of their role is I was hired to operate the system and be a firefighter. So yeah. in some sense, it's like asking a firefighter, and I don't actually know any firefighters personally, so they may say this analogy is dumb, but asking them, you know, hey, could you also learn everything about being a paramedic and also still fight fires? And some of them would be like, well, I got hired to fight fires. Why would I do that? And what's interesting, actually, is a side now that I'm thinking about it, there was an article, I'll see if I can dig up the link to it, that was saying, actually, in a terms of a transformation story, firefighters are actually doing more paramedic-type work now anyway. So Because their role kind of fundamentally changed because fire safety increased. So there is kind of an interesting thing. But I, I think you see teams where, to your point, Mike, it's like I wasn't hired to do that. I was hired to carry a hose and put out the fires and fix things with scripts, and and that's what I do. And so this concept is somewhat foreign to them when you're like, well, we could actually automate all those 48 things that you check. We have a chef recipe that does it, and we that little checklist of things that you make sure, we can automate those with tests. Yusuf, I think I cut you off. You were going to say something. Yeah, no, the, the thing that I – and actually it's interesting, the, the point that you just made, Paul, because I wanted to – to add to that and say that I think there, there's this sort of a, I don't know if this is a status quo or not, but at least with ops engineers that I've dealt with, that there's this kind of idea that 
oh, well, I'm not supposed to be writing code. Software developers do that. Software engineers do that. I'm an ops engineer. I don't write code. I don't do, uh, you know, I, I know Bash and Perl, maybe a little bit of Perl or Python, but I don't I don't really write code. And case in point, I have an interesting story. I had to work on a project with a data engineer to pull down some data from, from SharePoint. Long story short, SharePoint exposes their lists and stuff as, as uh, RSS feeds. So he wanted to go through and write some Bash script to go in and curl and grab the data and then basically implement his own RSS parser using Satanoc. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, uh, why Why do we want to do this? And he's like, I, I, don't, I don't do APIs. Like, he literally said that to me. He said, I don't, I do, don't APIs. do APIs. Friends don't let friends do APIs. Exactly. And friends, yeah, yeah. yeah. The story kind of reminds me of, you know, maybe there's, I don't know if there's a stigma in the industry that, you know, ops engineers do ops stuff and they don't touch code. They don't like code. They don't have anything to do with software engineering or software development for them. I mean, very much to Yusuf's point, that's kind of what I was getting at is that it's, there's a combination of, of factors, so it's, you get a little bit different at each, each, each institution, and a lot of the times you'll have people like that's, they either perceive it as, you know, that's not my job, or they perceive it, these, these kinds of things that you're like, no, no, it's good for you. And when you come in, and I, this, you know, this is what I do for a job a lot, is I come into places and, I'm, and you know, I'm like, I'm going to automate the stuff that takes you five days to do. And that, for a lot of people, is think, think like uh, automotive industry. Like you're like, yeah, so we just made a robot that does your job better than you do. And like people don't, I mean, even even if you're like, oh no, you'll have a job. There's you know somebody maintain the automation. There is still a weird, yeah, I don't want to say like survival level kind of thing. But people are like they're like their thing has been threatened. And I know a lot of people who, and myself included, in the past who are proud of their 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 kind of burning tire fire that they hated. But they're like, no, this is my tire fire. I will protect my tire fire, despite the fact that you should have really just started over type of thing. So I mean, there's there's definitely that for both management as well as as well as employees themselves. Right. Well, so the question I, I wanted to ask, we, we took kind of a long detour, but but I wanted to get it, get us to this point, and, and I'm glad we took that detour. But so my question is, back to the, the tweet at hand, that it's going to take ages for, for us to adopt these practices that seemingly we should leverage our friendly developers' pasts and make different decisions. What have you all found? I mean, Ranjeev, how did you sell it to the business side? I mean, was it an example of an engineering-first uh, or engineering-driven culture like Mike said, so it was an easy sell? How did you sell it to other ops engineers? And, of course, for the rest of the panel, what have you found works to get people to understand that, you know, maybe the robots are coming for their jobs, but that doesn't mean they don't have a job, and maybe it is nice to be nice. It, it, it pays off to invest, as it were, in boring things like infrastructure. Yeah, I think I, I didn't try any one of those. What I did is I, I actually studied, like, what, what really matters, how I can get these things. And a couple of things that came out was, like, some of the very basic motivation things, uh, and also, like, how you can be effective. One of the key things I, I realized is that what all matters is that how far you are from the top executive chain, right? And only that matters. Only that is the, all that, I mean, this is a statistical study and there are publications around it. So there I just switched job and I, I joined a startup where my founders are technical and they are from a positions background and they deeply care about it. And, and, and we joined as a four-member team and since then we did TDD from the first day. And then initial, initial first one year, like we kind of evolved into a steadily then standard unit test. And then over three years course, we are 
and first of all, all of us were are pretty amazing, but TDD and the whole flow was new. And not only that, we had like different different backgrounds. Some were really good at networks, some were persistent store and things like that. But four years, uh, sorry, but two and a half years down the line, we are we are pretty good at it. So I just saw on the other end, I just changed my job and I came where I know that it's going to work. It's not going to, I didn't fight with the wall. So this is one of those, uh, everybody's hiring and so yeah. if they're not going to yeah, get I mean, it. I, I guess I guess if I was like say senior VP at a larger corporation, probably I could have this kind of things and that could have effect. Because remember what I said that how far you are from the top executives, where the decision making is happening, or some people who are trying to make the change and they are empowered and you are joining that bandwagon. But otherwise, if you're in a really large place where you are super far from the top executives, forget about it. Or just join a startup and and do a lot of stuff, and from there you prove the value ground right. up. Yeah, I'm, I'm not such a firm believer that the only way that change happens in an organization is from the top down. I've seen change happen from, you know, middle management or even from in single engineers. The difference I th I've seen, though, is that change on an organization level, it's much easier to implement when you're the CEO and you could basically create an edict that says tomorrow everyone will, all their code will be services and have APIs and anyone who doesn't will be fired, right? Like exactly. that's the, and then, then, very easy to do that. So change like that is easy, but change from the bottom up is possible. It's just much, much harder. Exactly. Right? And, and that means also your journey is going to be longer. You are looking at say, 10 years or 15 years of you know, investment in, in the same place. Yeah. When I, when I talk to engineers who are like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I love the place I work, but you need to eventually change, you know, continuous delivery or make a number of changes that they see as technical that maybe the business agree with. I was like, that's great. You should try to do that. Are you ready for two years worth of effort on doing that in addition to your job? Basically, two years of adopting a second job. Exactly. And that's, that's the reality of it. Like, you're yep. going to have a long journey. Yep. And when I say ages, I mean, like, at least you are looking at three years of succession. And you'll have three. Like, the first three years is only on STD lead and getting used to the idioms and things like that. Then will come the patterns, you know, the designs, and then things that makes actually resilient. That build uh, that helps you build things that has less of maintenance, which will eventually reduce your tactical load. That is like the second third year, and then the, the last three years you will probably spend on architectural stuff. You just explore different architectural things like that. But even in that, it is like quite a long journey, right? Yeah. Let me ask you this: uh, to that point, uh, you mentioned architectural design and that sort of thing. Do you think that part of the problem with adopting sort of development-focused practices is that traditionally maybe operations had a more fragmented or maybe siloed approach to architecture of their operations space? Or, or is yeah. that is that, yeah, that think, a thing? I think so, especially for, for web operations where we, we never knew like what, what is their product will be. Unlike, you know, other, let's say, standard structural engineering projects. Then the operations like you, there are a lot more development efforts you'll see or practices which does not take on a capacity planning as part of the development. Think of that. Anything that you are doing with structural engineering, you have to have take account of uh, capacity planning. Like this many people it has to support. But we still write a lot of applications for which we just don't know. It will take 2 GB RAM to run 10 users or something, we don't know. Right. right the, and, and a lot of times we call those the you know, sort of non-functional requirements, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so th there was a question that uh, kind of came up for discussion around the area, uh, again, for operations people adopting developers' practices. Question around why do ops engineers write infrastructure as code? Why do they throw out good engineering practices like dry and solid practices? Dry being, of course, don't repeat yourself, and solid being... It's like five uh, principles, which you'll take like an hour to describe. Right. right. There, there's a great Good object-oriented code. 
Right, right. So I actually want to ask, does the panel agree with that? Do operations engineers, as a matter of course, tend to write any of their code where they, quote-unquote, throw out good software engineering practices? In my experience, I would probably say that the, some, the engineers, and so my experience is limited, like, ops engineers learning chef, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, not throwing darts on the, on the chef board, but, you know, learning Ruby and how to write good chef cookbooks, they don't necessarily know that of dry, per se, as a principle, or it's the solid principles. And so I remember having a conversation, I think at ChefConf once, with a couple of engineers, and they were, we were talking, I talk, I mentioned the book Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby, which is a somewhat popular book about, but it's great for, it's a great introduction for ops engineers who want to learn how to do OO code. Yeah, we interviewed, um, yeah. yeah, we interviewed uh, Sandy on the show, we'll link to the, that episode. Yeah, and so they weren't even aware that, you know, there was necessarily a whole guidance on how to do good software in a code or the way to get started, right? Right. So, so, so it's an education thing. It's a, you want me to keep my day, have my day job where I'm fighting fires. You want me to learn Chef and deploy this whole new thing within my ecosystem. And by the way, while I'm doing it, you want me to learn, quote unquote, best practices, whatever that means. And maybe it's uh, object-oriented design or maybe it's functional design now if you're doing Scala, let's like the developers can't even make up their mind on what's best practices. And, and it, it, it's funny, right? If you put that all together, it, I can easily see how from an operations perspective, it's like, did you just tell me to go fuck myself, you know? Yeah, it is exactly like that. Yeah. Is there a way that you found, Mike, uh, Seth, Yusuf, Ranjib, to ease that pain, to, to reframe that so it's not quite so painful? Because that, I mean, you frame it that way, it is very painful. It's understandably. Well, I think I think we should keep it that way because it is painful, and if you really wanted to work on that, expect that kind of pain there. I mean, bring the pain forward. I'll say. I really like pairing software engineers with ops engineers, right? Yeah, so the software engineers are going, to, are going to come in with this foundation of dry and solid and all these other coding principles, and but they're not going to have the deep knowledge of infrastructure networking that maybe an ops engineer have, and so, so being able to marry those two together. So in other words, you're saying we should have the developers be next to the ops team, and we might call that, I, I don't know, like ops dev? Or? Dev, dev to ops. Let's call it that. <laughs> yeah. well, I think what's important, too, is if you're practicing Agile or, you know, or some variant of Agile, you need to have at least an a ops engineer there to sort of bring forward, I, I hate using this term, non-functional requirements, because they're, they're operational requirements. That's a, that's a better description of it. You need to have that ops engineer on the team saying, no, you can't do this, or no, um, you can't write the local disk because you're using immutable uh, images. So you, you, know, you need to write to some you know, common store or whatever. So I think that's definitely important, but it's, it's tricky because, again, you've got the ops engineer that's firefighting and you know, they don't show up to stand-ups. And I, I mean, I've been in that situation. I've been... I've been at companies where they'll say, "Oh, just stick an ops engineer on a um, scrum uh, a scrum team, and that'll it'll just work itself out." I think you, I, you know, I agree with with Mike. You you definitely need to not only pair them up, but there needs to be some sort of a plan. Um, sort of the idea that the ops is a part of the development team; they're not separate. I think you can do something like IOC inversion of control. You know, but what what we try to is that if you are a service team, you have to deal with your servers. And the way we can ha- help you is that we can provide you an, an ops person. Uh, whatever is your current 
practices you can teach them. Our, our code we can test, and this is our way of doing things, and we do CI. But again, uh, it is it is hard, particularly because you know anything that is like emergency fix, for example, a security patch, you have to you have to do it, or some network outage is happening, you have to mitigate it. It is always harder to allocate dedicated time. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I see a lot of a, a lot of the push to get better in the space is actually and and if Pete were here he would he would uh, bang this drum on, on the it's the security patch that it, it's that's the thing that makes people wake up to all of this stuff it's kind of funny that there are forces in that direction as well right there are sort of yep. in some sense operational forces from operating a complex system that if you don't address them you're the night capital case where you lose 400 million dollars overnight so that's in some sense good but it's one of those like you can get burnt really uh, really badly I wanted to ask, Ranjib, what do you think the pitfalls that, that we've seen in the last 20 to 30 years, I know it's a broad question, with development and shipping bits and code, what pitfalls are we liable to fall into as uh, operations engineers? Looking forward, what do you think that looks like? You mean uh, the operations concerns and, and the things that we can do on development? Well, no, no, no. I mean, if the idea is for uh, operations to become more dev-focused, to use uh, more sort of software engineering principles to do unit mm -hmm. testing, what other pitfalls have software engineers that are doing code that is shipped to customers? What pitfalls have they run into that you think we might be likely to run into? To as operations engineers that are more than just the ones we've discussed tonight. Yeah, I think one of the one of the biggest thing we'll learn is is the patterns that we don't realize. A lot of us are, are doing similar things and we don't have the common even pattern language that we can. Talk like to. A, de a design but, patterns book. Yeah, almost, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, I'll just tell you that we just uh, mentioned solid principle, right? Which is okay. SLI five principle. One of them is very interesting is a list of substitution principle. Every time you, you read that uh, tutorial, you it will talk about geometric shapes, squares, and circles. And operations engineers cannot really connect to that. But if you give an example, like this is my shape load balancer, and if it is TCP load balancer, I can I should be able to replace it with either Squid or or uh, HAProxy. And I want to keep two implementation, but I want the consumer cookbook to be like that. That is my interface. That is a perfect example of list of substitution principle. But there are no such examples. There are no such uh, resources. Nobody has invested time on that. So this is one of the biggest pain that we don't have operation specific example. Also, the fact that if we do so. In future, if we want to get rid of one particular type of tools and replace with exact equivalent, and that is possible, probably a newer one. Like, you know, with 1604, we'll all run system on Ubuntu. Uh, till now, it is upstart. But we can test it because both of them are in its system, and we can write those kind of, and we can follow a list of substitution principle to refactor our recipes. But these kind of examples are not there. Not only there, uh, overall, I think uh, leadership does not really understand that, that they still, still treat uh, IT as a cost center, not a strategic vantage point. So that, I think that really nails it. Is is the whether whether you're making IT a strategic is is it is a strategic advantage? And I feel like a lot of companies, whether by by their own recognizance or or the recognizance of their competitors, have started to see that. IT can be a strategic differentiator, and that's where, especially when I'm traveling to different companies, uh, you know, especially some of the bigger ones, you're seeing a lot of them all of a sudden like jumping full on to the. We need to have a, a, a singular view of like our operations, and we need to simplify these hundreds, thousands of servers. They all of a sudden they're they're really chomping at the bit, and it's just because they've seen their competitors start doing it. So it's you know you, you definitely have that. When when people start seeing as a as a an advantage, I think there was one company I was talking to, and their it was interesting because their CIO won like Innovator of the Year for their region, 
And then every other IT department looked at, you know, they wanted to win, you know, the, every CIO wanted to get that innovator of the year. And so they looked at what this other group was doing and the other, this group was just doing, you know, continuous improvement, configuration management, continuous integration, that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, like, the company now, you know, they can't get enough of that stuff. Um, but it required, it required, even if it was something arbitrary, like somebody winning an award, they needed to sh kind of have that, that shift from it's just a cost sink to it's potentially not just saving us money, but making us more money. Well, so let me ask something about that, because my question was predicated on the, the comparison of pitfalls that developers have fallen into. So in some sense, this we hear this all the time, that companies that get it understand the way they run operations, the way they run IT, that's a business differentiator. But if you're making that claim that it's a pitfall like software, mm -hmm. in some sense, it's almost like the difference between putting, it's almost like the internet revolution, right? Putting our software online or almost like, you know, IBM going, we're going to stop making typewriters and start making like actual computers. And the reason I bring that up is because it sounds like it's it's almost that fundamental of a shift in perspective. I think so. Do you think, Seth? Yeah, I, I totally, I definitely agree. One thing I wanted to ask is you could certainly take this, you know, we earlier we were talking about pairing, what that would look like, some methodologies to start cross-pollinating. You could certainly take your tweet, Ranjib, and invert it and say it will take ages before traditional developers understand and adopt mainstream operations practices. Do you think that is also the case? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I can I can give you see I can give you a very concrete example. So every time you, you go to an operations, check how many times they use grep to find a text inside a source code repository. Now, uh, it is at least 15 years back we have realized that from the development community that from you can you don't have to step out of your editor. You, from in vain you can use act plugin in Emacs you can do so. You can uh, IntelliJ you can do so. But you still say every time they develop uh, an operations engineer try to search a string, they'll step out of the uh, editor and then search use grep and then go back. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that there are incremental paths, like even from Vim you can invoke grep and then also the same functionality available via grep plugin. But the fact that you will do that operations for only 20,000 times in your career, if you learn a better way to do that, that will save a lot of time and that will give you things. But uh, but but we know that 40% of people will just fail rather than prefer to change their way of things. Right, uh, but, and those are, but those that was an operations example, yes? Yeah. Yeah, so, so do you think traditional quote-unquote developers yeah, I think problems understand, I mean, it's this, you know, they maybe don't understand the difference between, uh, you know, the, the network stack or... Yeah. or I mean, it was simple, just say a 12-factor app. The entire 12-factor app development is basically just that side of the story. How you can make applications that are operationally uh, mature, you know, that those are flex flexible, their configurations are externalized, those are easy to deploy, those are easy to scale. Uh, but again, that is not operations. That is just the development side of story. By all doing all those things, you'll come up with probably a idealistic stateless applications, which will involve a persistent tier. But operations is both persistent tier and the app, remember. So um, it, it is just the other side of the story. And they are also going to learn. And every time we'll see a new set of revolution, that means we'll see, say we had seen Rails, and Rails had a, a tendency to put all the configuration checked in inside the repository. Right. So they are, so that's why there was a lot of talk, and they come up with their version. Before that, also we have seen from the C community, C++ community, PHP community, and we're going to see the again same with the Go community. But probably we'll see a lot less. Probably we'll see the service um, management systems, uh, you know, or service discovery system kick in. Probably they'll have debug integration. Probably uh, new generation init scripts like uh, init system like system D will have baked in integration with service discovery like XD. All those things will change, but nonetheless there will be some amount of friction. And we only hope that it is getting lesser and lesser. But it is an asymptotic. 
what do you think is the biggest cause of that friction on the development side? That developers, what, what's the biggest hurdle for them? I'll open this up to the panel as well. Yeah, I think most of the time because they are not dealing with the operations. If they are responsible for running this, they'll start seeing that what happens. And then what you have to do to mitigate those issues, which is basically operations. Amen. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I agree with that. You, as soon as you put a pager on some uh, engineer's exactly. belt, they're going to write different code, right? Exactly. They're going to be more worried about yeah. logging statements and performance and network, you know, use utilization. So that's one of the best ways to make sure that engineers think operationally is to make them feel that pain of of operating in production. I agree with that, but I think um, one thing that I I've learned from just the whole DevOps movement as well as the chef conferences that I've had the privilege of attending is having a, a healthy amount of empathy towards your, whether it's a developer, ops engineer, tech writer, whatever role the company that you're working on is really, really important. And I think having and establishing that culture of empathy is, it goes sort of, you know, towards a long way of, I think, getting things done cohesively. Do you think part of the problem or a part of the hurdle for doing it on the development side is if you're an operations engineer and you're learning to code, you can pair with a developer, you can work through that together, you know, you can kind of do pair programming, but that may be harder on the operations side because oftentimes either, as we said earlier, operations people are fighting fires, so it's like I don't have time to have the rookie firefighter who's the developer trying to learn this stuff with me, or it's maybe if they're not firefighting, they're kind of waiting for the next fire. Is that part of the problem? Uh, and if it is, how do you overcome that? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been in some firefighting situations where I paired up with somebody and just looked looked over their shoulder and watched how they the tools they use and approach a scenario that was super useful for me, even though I was just observing. And so I think junior operations engineers could learn a lot from senior engineers just by pairing up and observing how they operate. Which well, developers as well. Developers yeah. as well, for sure. Yeah, I would I would give a hearty plus one to that just because that's something that I was fortunate enough to get um, at one point in my career where I was looking over the shoulder and, and sometimes it was like a, a shared screen session where somebody's like, here's me debugging the issue and I'm actually able to watch like every command they type and I have access to the system as well. Because I don't think, especially with, with regard, you got you have a lot of like software engineering practices that are canonicalized and even part of the educational spectrum. Um, but you don't have that still, I think, to a large degree for operation stuff. So I think it's arguably sometimes more valuable for the devs to watch how ops people do things because, I mean, some of it is like, I mean, you guys know where this information comes from. It's like digging around in man pages and that thing you learned from that guy you met at that one conference that one time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, that's, and it's like stuff that's buried deep inside your ZSHRC or your Bash profile. Oh, right. Like right. this is... There's a lot of there's a lot of archaeology and and I even say like lore with how to like solve problems and methodologies and there don't get me wrong there's there's some great books out there that, that talk about it like how to how to troubleshoot things but you need to for a lot of developers it's seeing the mindset shift of somebody who's in operations and what they're you know how they go about doing it it's super useful and I can't I think more developers should do it because then they kind of see. And it's, it's one of those, like, you know, walk, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes type of thing, but it's also, it gives devs, in the same way that operations people watching developers write code, is, you know, kind of gives you, like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. You know, it's super helpful. 
It's funny you say that because I, I, I was poking around a wiki. I, I was doing some work with Pete, and there was a note on the wiki, actually, I think from a developer that was saying most of the the magic is in Pete's .git config, or maybe it was a bash RC, I can't remember, for this. And, and to your point, Seth, it's kind of uh, oftentimes there is the lore around the magical Z-shell RC or, or bash RC that kind of gets passed within the organization, you know, operations engineers, and like developers, Developers, uh, this is similar, I think, uh, among all engineers, bring a toolbox with them. And in some sense, it's almost democratizing and within an organization and sharing the toolboxes that we almost don't know that we have, our uh, RC files, our config files that, that we've just accreted over the years, but we don't even know that that's something that makes us productive. And as a developer, you might never know to ask, hey, uh, ask your ops person what their git config is or vice versa, right? Stuff like that. That may be a part of it that is a little harder to sort of see sometimes, especially on that random wiki page off in the corner. Right, and that wiki page may not, you know, it's it's one of those going back to like tribal knowledge problems. Right. But that's also why it's good. I mean, that's, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I've tried to do over the past few years as I've moved, especially out out of exclusively operations and more into doing development with other people and working, you know, maintaining projects is I'm trying to divest myself of all of any of that lore or mythos, like anything that I can put on GitHub or like basically make some public process or cookbook. Like I try and get, get that somewhere else or someplace common as quickly as I can because I don't want to be the keeper of this, of these, of this lore. Like that's, that's not right. something you, you ever want to be. And so right. Um, I think as you get more people who are, especially, I think I know this is more in startups where you're, you know that the people you're working with may not be the same people. You, you may not work together for you know the next five years. That there was more of a culture of like, hey, we're just going to put this stuff here because this is the way you should do it because people are going to move around a lot and maybe not move around leave the company but move around inside of the company. Well, and I know you've run into this, Seth, from a release engineering standpoint when your build process and and I uh, oftentimes get hired to sort of address this your build process is step one get out the altar step two find the goat step three <laughs> light a candle you know and then yeah. kill the goat sort of thing and burn the fat all this kind of stuff that is one of those things where it's like uh those are kind of issues of they are artifacts of this idea that there are tribes and it seems like then that the, what you were saying if you're going to kind of distill it to a tldr point it's like you need to shift to the tribe being us the tribe right. is not. The tribe is us, all of us. Um, right. Yeah. The tribe, doesn't, the tribe doesn't serve anybody's goals when you know it's when it's the small tribe. And like I, I mean, I want somebody else. Like I've been do, so I've been doing this very thing recently. I've been building a build pipeline for a project we have at Chef, and I've been putting together this pipeline. But part of putting together the pipeline is also like exposing the history of it and be like, this is how it did work, this is how it works now, and then put that all into the code. So it's all part of the history of the artifact, and then also the automation and the build system and everything. All that information is basically tied around that repository. So now, the next person who comes along, who's not me, because I came in and inherited this, you know, like 80% of the way along, so now I can be like, oh, well, you know, they have a starting point, and it's, it's something you can hand off now, and anybody could come to and look at and that's kind of where I think all projects should go they should be you know, it's a beautiful idea of like they are self-documented projects like everything you need to run in there there's always going to be little bits of tribal lore but every time you find one of those like commit like it's really easy to just add a comment or 
add it to the wiki on Git, you know, because GitHub has free wikis. Um, so stuff like that is is become more important. It sounds like almost the hurdle is doing that handoff once. And even if it's not a complete handoff, though, you find all of the weird points, and, and especially if you yeah. hand it off to someone that's uh, on a different team, you know, uh, ops, handing that off to a developer or developer, uh, you know, the reverse handing it off to ops. So, Ranjib, you oftentimes will tweet things that get a lot of discussion uh, discussion around kind of the things that we discussed tonight on Twitter a, a lot of times. Do you have any other controversial tweets you're working on that we can look forward to? No, I'm, I'm working a lot on Chef and Arm. I'm looking forward to really solar powered infrastructure, something like that. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us tonight and letting us dissect your tweets from a couple of years ago. And we'll be back in a moment here on the Ship Show. One on, one low, one moon, one earth, one light, 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 light. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, uh, still going through all the tooltips that we uh, have uh, saved up for y'all. And tonight, Yusuf is bringing us a fun tooltip. Uh, if you have to work with HTTP weirdness and uh, do a little debugging that we talked about in the news and views, Yusuf, what's what's your tooltip for us? Yeah, so there's a nice little tool called Wiremock. If you go head over to wiremock.org, basically it's a, uh, it's a Java library that you can use to mock web services. What's really cool about it is that you, you write your... Uh, Integration tests with uh, with JUnit can actually and Wiremock integrates with with JUnit, so it implements the sort of app rule or app class rule, so you can start up the HTTP service and you can. Uh, I've used it to mock self endpoints. So there are other tools that are out there that I don't want to mention that have really crazy GUIs that you have to use to do this kind of stuff. And I find that Wiremock is a lot more powerful. You can also use it for REST web services or pretty much any HTTP endpoint. So, yeah, great tool. For those of you who are not into Java or JVM type stuff, apparently there's also a PHP binding. Yeah, I just saw that. I sent over the heading. I couldn't possibly be seen using Java. I've got my image to think about. <laughs> sorry, yeah. sorry, Mike. <laughs> Java for life. Yeah. Right on the back. Yeah. Do you have that tattooed on your knuckles, Mike? Java for life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, so this is, I mean, I, I think one of those things, you know, I was actually, Mike, the, the reason I was thinking about you was, was our uh, testing discussion from, what, two or three episodes ago. And, and I think one of those things that in general makes testing, you know, we talk about it at a very high level. I think we, we did a very broad overview of that. But it's often little tools like this that actually make it work, you know, make it like uh, a feasible thing to do in your day-to-day life, you know, convenience tools like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could see some this tool just about, you know, Yusuf brought it up recently, but, like, I could definitely see myself using this in a number of cases and thinking some cases where I should have used this years ago, which is a shame, but... Yeah. Well, and also I was thinking, uh, Seth, with that bug you're talking about news and views, you can <laughs> try to use this tool to figure out why is the server 500 Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Like, that was... I was, like, ready to, like, start tracing, like, packets from my computer. Like, that's, like, that's how crazy I was going. Um... <laughs> You never, never should assume that somebody designed that whoever designed an API was not in the grips of madness. It's funny you <laughs> kind of look like when you're debugging. I had this image of like uh, kind of looking like Doc Brown from Back to the Future. You know, you just kind of pretty, pretty much. I'm constantly bewildered and scared of everything I see. Yeah, yeah. Usually, I really like the uh, API, the the Java API. So yeah, uh, yeah. good stuff. Fluent, the nice fluent yeah. API. Yeah. 
All right, upcoming conferences. We'll run through them because we're uh, we're coming up on conference season again. So there's a ton of them. But uh, DevOps Days, Tel Aviv, I'll actually be uh, speaking there. And then some of the other ones, uh, Charlotte, Silicon Valley is coming up, uh, Detroit, Ohio. And then there are a couple others that are around the world. You should check out DevOpsDays.org since they there are a bunch of those for the rest of the year. Also want to mention the week of October 5th is crazy. PuppetConf, reInvent, and uh, DevOps Day Tel Aviv are all that week. And then a week after, October 12th, Velocity in New York, DevOps Enterprise Summit on the 19th, OSCON Europe the week after that, and Chef Community Summit, October 14th and 15th. Community Summit, which uh, I just got Nathan Harvey's email saying, we would love, you know, it was the, the form email that gets sent. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. Would love, yeah but, but then I was like, well, I would love to come, but, you know, uh, Velocity, sorry. Yeah, I know. It's one of those, it's, it's, there are too many conferences every yeah. year. Yeah, and I know I know they, they know that, and I know they feel bad about it, but it was like that was the only time it worked because there was some other stuff going on, too. Oh, um, there, yeah, there's, 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 so much, there's so much overlap now. Like, yeah. there, it's, it's kind of, there's no way you're going to be able to go to every conference for even the same small niche space at this yeah. point. Yeah. Well, but yeah, check those out uh, if you're uh, in conference mode or, or looking to do a finish the year up with a conference. So, uh, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From the brand new Netflix offices in Los Gatos, California, this is Mike signing off. And from Seattle, this is Seth signing off. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs>